Good. So this session is about, what is it about? Yeah, that's a good question. It's about AI, it's about robots, it's about platform workers. What future for European welfare states? Uh, it's a topic that Bruegel recently published a, a major study on, uh, sponsored by the, uh, the uh, MasterCard Center for Inclusive Growth. Um, our uh, managing director is also a fellow there. Professor Tyson is also a fellow there. Um, and uh, I'm among the authors of the study. So we have a very distinguished panel today. I'll be keeping my introductory remarks very brief in order not to take time away from these uh, very senior panelists. So why are we worried about AI and robots and the future of work anyway? Well, what I think we've all heard, many of the panels today talked about an accelerating pace of technological change. Many things happening, artificial intelligence, big data, machine learning, Internet of Things, huge transformative changes in society. And the question that's been increasingly on the table is what do these changes imply for the future of work? What do they imply for the future of European welfare states? One event that really got the discussion moving was a paper by Fry and Osborne. The first versions appeared in 2013. In it, they claimed that as much as 47% of the US workforce uh, of, of the jobs would disappear in a small number of decades. Now, 47%, that raised a lot of eyebrows. However, many people have looked at this since and hardly anybody today agrees with that figure. Most of the estimates look more in the 10% range, depends on who you talk to. Uh, and in fact, uh, one very interesting piece of work done by one of my uh, Bruegel colleagues, Jorios uh, Petropoulos, found that uh, those parts of Europe that had the highest density of robots actually have lower than average unemployment, which if you think about it, makes sense. So there are some really wide open questions as to how much unemployment these technological changes are likely to drive. With that said, the one thing that pretty much everybody agrees with is that these changes are going to lead to big changes in the workplace and that large number of jobs will be somehow affected even if they don't necessarily disappear. And this raises many, many questions. Now, one related phenomenon is the growth of platform work, the growth of various forms of non-traditional employment. <coughs> this is not an entirely new trend. In the literature, we see papers going back to the 1980s talking about increasing labor flexibility. It probably existed before then as well. Uh, and it essentially represented a move away from traditional full-time jobs into either non-traditional work, various kinds of new employment today where either multiple workers share one job or multiple jobs share one worker. Um, it's, uh, it's not an entirely new phenomenon, but it's moving in, in at an unprecedented speed. And that, of course, has raised the salience of the discussion. So it raises many questions, and uh, among them are for these self-employed workers, for platform workers, for many of the non-traditional workers, 
What does this imply for their benefits? Where do they get their pensions? Where do they get their health insurance? What about disability and validity insurance? What about maternity and paternity leave? What about unemployment insurance? Is unemployment insurance even meaningful for the self-employed? We have a significant number of self-employed, not changing so quickly in Europe, but about 14% of the workforce. Four out of that 14, however, are self-employed who have their own employees. So they're probably in a rather different position from those who don't. So there's issues for all of these workers on how we ensure that they get benefits. There's also issues about portability of benefits. We have regulations in Europe since 2004 and 2009 that try to ensure portability of key benefits across the member states. But like many aspects of social protection, those are geared towards traditional full-time employees. So again, the question of portability for non-traditional workers, for self-employed, is again an issue on the table, an issue in fact that uh, the Commission and the European institutions have attempted to address. I think Anne will be talking about this in a few moments. Um, and um, in addition, we have questions about the whole social dialogue, trade unions. What does that look like in this brave new world that we're heading to? So these are really the questions that I think will be taken up by the panel in the coming moments. Um, and in particular, a focus on the role for the different players. What role for the European institutions? What role for the member states in a system where responsibility is largely but not exclusively with the member states? Um, what role for trade unions and other social partners? What role for the firms? What role for the workers? And um, how does this look in other parts of the world? Professor Tyson, who is with us, has held senior US government positions and teaches in the United States. Interesting country these days. I'm American too, by birth. Uh, me, me either, I didn't vote for him. <coughs> so uh, with that said, uh, I'd like to start the discussion and hand off to our, again, our, our very talented panel. Uh, and our first speaker will be uh, Mr. Alexander Stubb. Uh, European Investment Bank and uh, former Prime Minister of Finland. And with that, over to you. Thank you very much and, and good afternoon to everyone. I know <coughs> acoustics are a little bit challenging here. I'll try to be as uh, clear uh, as possible. First, the usual caveat. Uh, I'm here in a personal capacity, so if I say something that makes sense, uh, you should congratulate the EIB. Uh, if I say something stupid, just, you know, blame me. Um, I'm try also trying to be really savvy here in the beginning, so I'll be sometimes looking at my notes from here on the phone, just like my two teenage kids. But I'll reveal something to you. I just took a photo of the notes that I made in a, in a very analog, analog for, for, format. Now, wh what I'll do today, I've been allotted uh, 10 minutes, is to try to give you a little introduction. Uh, and then make three points. And then finally, in conclusion, give five recommendations to the uh, upcoming uh, commission. Now, by way of introduction, um, I would make an argument without being too alarmist that uh, artificial intelligence combined with robotization, combined with Internet of Things, um, and especially the combination of technology and biology will change three things fundamentally. Number one, it'll change the way in which we work and the economy. Number two, 
it will change politics and media. And number three, it will change science and ultimately, I would argue, the future of mankind. Some of the changes are good, some of them are challenging, and some of them are bad. And I think one could say that if you look at the development of things linked to AI and robotization uh, in terms of the first, second, third or fourth industrial revolution, and if this is the fourth industrial revolution, think of the magnitude of the first industrial revolution. What did that bring with it? Marxism. I think this is a hundred times bigger. And we really don't know where all of this is going to take us. But I'll take you through the three points. Number one, the way in which AI and robotization will change the economy and the way in which we work. And on every point, I'll give you a book recommendation. So book recommendation number one is McAfee and Brynjolfsson, uh, The Second Machine Age. Uh, the basic argument there is that we will be changing uh, the way in which we work, uh, we will have platforms, we will have machines, and we will have crowds. Now, conventional wisdom says, as you did in your introduction, that this will destroy all work. And conventional wisdom also says that it'll mostly destroy blue-color work. To be honest, I think this is rubbish. Uh, at any time we have an economic revolution, uh, there will be a change in the way in which we work. Uh, and quite often there will be an increase in productivity. Someone will come back to me and say, but Alex, high tech is not increasing productivity, therefore we will lose jobs. I am much more worried about the discrepancy between human beings and the notion of inequality. I think that a lot of the white collar, middle type of jobs uh, will start withering away. Whether it's a lawyer, my wife is one, I, can say this, uh, you know, whether it's an accountant, whether it's a radiologist, uh, a lot of the service type of jobs will start being made, I think, in a better way by artificial intelligence. And when that happens, you're going to have a clear binary division between those people who are able to adapt and do the big stuff, and then those who move to more mundane type of services. And I'm not saying taking care of the elderly is mundane. I'm not saying that serving food is mundane. But the bottom line is that a lot of the middle class type of jobs that we used to have will go away. Am I making this with 100% certainty? No, because to be honest, none of us, no one knows what AI and robotization uh, is going to do to jobs. My first big point here is that in the next 10, 15, 20 years, the key is going to be how do we take care of the transition? If you're an international liberal like me and you blame uh, this change or digital revolution as the cause of Trump and Brexit, then you could make an argument that we haven't managed the transition so far very well. My second point is that it will change the way in which politics and media works. And believe me, having been in politics and a little bit under the scrutiny of the media, I would make the argument that it is already taking place. Remember with the Arab Spring, we all believe that technology is going to be the big liberator. We are going to witness digital democracies. Everyone will convert. The end of history is upon us. 
and the technological means are going to help us to freedom, to openness, to understanding, to rationality. Well, one could make the argument that the reverse has also taken place. We've gone from digital democracies more towards uh, digital dictatorships. And I'm not only talking about election meddling uh, by uh, Cambridge uh, Analytica, uh, but I am talking about the way in which technology is polarizing everything that we do. The best way I've heard it explained, and this is where I need my notes because I'm right in the process of listening to this book, uh, is in a book by Jamie Bartlett, who wrote about people versus tech. And he used the Daniel Kahneman and Tversky uh, slow and fast argument and said that democracy actually is made for system two, the slow contemplation, uh, the compromise, the reflection. But actually modern democracy is more going towards system one, you know, the quick decision making on social media, you have to react to everything and everything you react to is usually quick and at, you know, quite acrimonious. And I, I have a tendency to agree with that. Whereas technology has given us a lot of more information, also the capacity for us to siphon through that information, I think is unfortunately quite limited. So I think the jury is still out about whether technology is actually helping us out as far as the democratic process is going on or smacking us uh, in the face. I can't give you an exact answer on that. I for one think that referenda are actually quite dangerous because they provide you with a binary decision which is black or white and life is a little bit more uh, complicated uh, than that. The problem with technology, the likes of Twitter, uh, the likes of Facebook, it is that it becomes quite binary and when algorithms start telling us that you know our friends are here and there, we start getting the same information. So is this a good thing for public discourse? It is very difficult to be of a different opinion nowadays, isn't it? You know, I'm, I'm scared to put stuff which is controversial on Twitter because I know that I'll be slammed by I don't know who, uh, you know, Breitbart or, or, or Russian trolls or, you know, Brexit campaigners and so. Isn't that then an impediment on my freedom of speech and my democratic right to express myself? And this actually worries me. So we need to take care of this transition as well so that democracy doesn't go down with uh, the baby bathwater. What do you want to read on this? Of course, uh, you can go and read uh, Why Democracies Die, or you can go and read uh, all the books of Yuval Harari. They're somehow linked to this. Now, my third and final point, if you allow me, Chairman, uh, is Please. that uh, AI and robotization is already, of course, changing science and the way in which we are human beings. <coughs> now, science, of course, for the better. Uh, technological advancement, we don't need to go into the details, but the capacity for us or medicine to do <coughs> operations from far away, to give uh, diagnosis, to analyze situations, medicine in general, all good stuff. But then we start approaching the moment when biology and technology come together. You and I, in many ways, are the first generation of Homo sapiens hybrids, right? How many of you can seriously live without a smartphone today? Seriously? Uh, but you have a smartphone in your hand, no, in your, yeah, exactly. 
So what I'm trying to say is that we are extremely dependent on anything technological. Now, where is the limit then? The fact that nowadays we don't really read maps anywhere anymore, we go to Google Maps. Um, the, the, the fact that we get all of our music, all of our books, all of our audio books, information, email, and the rest of it in a digital form. That's great. What's the first thing you do when you wake up in the morning? Kiss your partner? Check the, partners. Check the phone. What's the last thing you do in the evening when you go to bed? Well, okay, you don't need to get into this. I'm fine. But, you know, the bottom line is it's most probably uh, the smartphone. Now, the smartphone is great. My kids, 18 and 15, they communicate with the rest of the world. They get information, they follow stuff, they have international friends. What do we do at home on the sofa? Do we discuss with each other? Quite often, we find ourselves on the smartphones. So while the virtual world becomes bigger, the actual physical world uh, becomes a lot, lot smaller. Where does this lead in the future of mankind? Here again, go for uh, Yuval Harari, Homo Deus. Of course, we're getting godlike features. Let me just give you one example. Isn't it great that if someone's hand is amputated, that technology can give that person a new hand, which at some stage will use neural laces, which can then manipulate that hand and it'll be normal. What if a security breach happens to that hand? Someone bugs it in, I have a gun in my pocket, I take it out and start shooting you. Who is to blame? Whose fault? There will be a lot of talk about autonomous vehicles. 1.3 million people die of traffic accidents per annum. Autonomous vehicles are great. My dad is 84, he's a good driver, but when he's 94, I'd much rather him you know, sit in an electric vehicle which drives him around. But the bottom line is, wh where is the limit? And I do think that we need an ethical code and an ethical standard for this. And this brings me to my conclusion and my recommendations, which I, in an extremely savvy fashion, uh, take from my smartphone. First thing, read Max Tegmark's book, uh, Life uh, 3.0, Max Tegmark. He says that we can approach technology in three ways. One, tech optimists. Go for it, Silicon Valley, it'll regulate itself, don't worry about it, artificial intelligence is great. The game go, alpha go, no worries, we human beings are in charge. Second, tech pessimists. Ah, it's not gonna happen in a hundred years, Alex, don't give me that bollocks about neural laces, you don't know where you're from, we're really far away from this technology. The third one is what I would call, and Tegmark calls, benign artificial intelligence. So, be aware that this technological revolution is taking place, try to guide it in one way or another, but don't try to stifle it. And here's where we come to my five recommendations for the commission. I think there are gonna be three big players here. China, the United States, and the European Union. The European Union should do five things. Number one, even if life with the current US administration is difficult, you must cooperate on technological matters. You must cooperate on technological matters. Because at the end of the day, issues linked to privacy, the way in which we handle technology in general, go hand in hand. I'm not saying China is completely different and I'm not saying reject China as a cooperating partner, not at all. We need to cooperate with China as well, 
but the Confucian view of privacy is a little bit different, as we can see from some of the apps which pretty much control your life in China already nowadays. My recommendation number two uh, for the Commission is to get serious on competition policy. And by this I mean both the way in which uh, tech giants are treated. I'm not giving an answer how it should be done, and I'm, I think the way in which the Commission has done it now has been excellent, but also about being competitive in this field. Because this is, you know, the future. If you get left out on AI, you're going to be out. Book recommendation, uh, Kai-Fu Lee, uh, AI superpowers. What does he do? He lives out of the European Union. He says that it's all about China and the United States. We in Europe have to think, why in the top 20 tech companies on Forbes 500, there are zero European uh, companies. Most of them are either Chinese or uh, American. Wake up, we need to be competitive. Recommendation number three, how do we do it? Go for innovation. We have to have an innovation conducive. So this commission has to make innovation possible. And commercial break, use the EIB to fund this. We are great at it. Uh, recommendation number four, regulation. I hate to say it, but if Europe is good at one thing, we are a regulatory superpower. And once you regulate, others follow. So do smart regulation. The giants will follow, the Chinese will follow, uh, and the rest of it. Do it, but do it in a smart way. And my final and fifth recommendation is, and the Commission is already doing it with the Alapietila report, deal with the issues of ethics with artificial intelligence. That's the huge thing. That's the huge thing. Take the lead in forging international treaties on ethics and AI, because that's going to be the future. So here, ladies and gentlemen, I hope I didn't go too long. Number one, it'll change the way in which we work in economics. Number two, it'll change politics and the media. And number three, it'll change science and mankind. But this is good and exciting stuff. Thanks. Well, thank you very, very much, Mr. Stubb, for uh, a, a rousing introduction, which I was pretty sure you would be uh, providing. So much thanks for that. And uh, with that, uh, having gone to one, two, and three, uh, let's go to four, which has a little more to do with work. Uh, and with that, I'd like to hand over to Anne Mettler. Uh, she's the head of the European Political Strategy Center, and she'll be telling us a bit about the European Social Pillar and uh, some of the related legislative uh, initiatives. So with that, over to you. Excellent. Thank you so uh, much. Oh, and, uh, uh, ten, 10 to 12 minutes, please. Yes, okay. Uh, thank you so much and a great pleasure uh, to be here with you today. Uh, like Alex, I also have sort of a disclaimer, uh, namely that I don't purport to speak uh, for the European uh, Commission necessarily. I just wanted to share with you a little bit uh, today how I have viewed the issues that we're discussing here uh, today from the vantage point that I've had in uh, the last couple of years. Because when we came in in 2014, it was very clear that uh, social issues were going to be a top priority of uh, my president. And already back then, I would say that there was a, um, a strong feeling in society of sort of social dislocation and um, dissatisfaction. Um, partly because it was in the immediate aftermath of the um, financial crisis, so there was still very much uh, sort of uh, uh, that feeling in society. But of course, we wanted to take action, 
but without sort of threatening the recovery that Europe was was undergoing. So it was a little bit, I mean, I uh, it, it needed a lot of reflection and also stock taking about everything that was going on and we needed to try to understand it better. So, so regarding the stock taking, I mean, the first thing we, we understood, and it sounds like a no-brainer, but nonetheless, I mean, the very notion of what constituted a job was changing. So the traditional nine-to-five job was no longer necessarily the reality that a lot of people faced. And what had replaced it to some extent is what some people call uh, sort of the Hollywood model of uh, the economy, so that teams could assemble and that jobs could sort of be sliced into different uh, parts and uh, and then people would come together they would uh, they would uh, deliver a project and then everyone would sort of go uh, their their different ways and what that meant is that uh, not, you wouldn't necessarily even have to live where you worked anymore and uh, this online collaboration was all of a sudden was becoming a reality in the world of work in ways that I think was uh, was was difficult to anticipate. So major changes under underway in in what constituted a job. The other thing we understood was that skills were profoundly changing, and uh, that uh, digital skills were becoming more and more important. Even for now, very mundane jobs, people all of a sudden had to have. Uh, uh, at least basic digital skills. We saw that especially when it came to routine manual skills, uh, that those were precisely the skills that were less in demand and that non-routine interactive skills saw a huge increase in demand. But how do you respond to that? So major changes underway and I remember at the time when we were about to launch the new skills strategy, we invited Andreas Schleicher from the OECD, he's the director for education at the OECD, and also the brilliant mind behind the PISA study. And one of the key points he related to us was that in Europe, people are over-educated and under-skilled. And from a public policy perspective, this has a lot of ramifications, namely that a lot of the way people acquire skills happen early in life through formal uh, ways and that we have neglected, even though we talk a lot about uh, lifelong learning, the reality is that those people that need it the most get the least li uh, lifelong learning. So there were major, major issues that needed to be addressed. The third thing we understood is that contracts were changing. Part-time and temporary work had grown much faster than sort of permanent uh, contracts. Uh, so all employment grew between 10% between 2000 and 2017, but part-time and temporary work grew three times as much. So 36% for part-time work and 30% for temporary. So again, this is, I mean, from a public policy perspective, is uh, really causes a major uh, reflection. And lastly, we also understood that the role of the self-employed was changing. So traditionally, when you thought of self-employed, you either thought of people who own big companies or so, or you thought of lawyers, doctors, architects. Um, but, uh, but all of a sudden, uh, more people in low value added type work all of a sudden were, were, were uh, classified as uh, self-employed. So it 
really necessitated a little bit of review of what constitutes self-employment. And one of the important distinctions that, in my opinion, needs to be made is between self-employed with employees and self-employed without employees. So if you look at the European workforce, 14% are classified as self-employed. But of the 14%, only 4% actually employ others. That means that 10% of the self-employed employ themselves. So these are precisely the people that oftentimes fell through the social, sort of through the cracks of the social system. And uh, because they are self-employed, by definition, they are not as well organized as others. So these were oftentimes issues that we didn't pay enough um, attention to. So again, going back from a public policy perspective, I think some of the key challenges we were facing was really how do we sustain the recovery um, while then also tackling some of these uh, social frictions that we were observing? And how could we modernize uh, the uh, systems that underpin social welfare provision when, I mean, let's be very clear, these systems that we build up, they were mostly built up uh, in, in the post-World War II era in the industrial age where for the most part it was white male workers in industry. I mean, it wasn't really equipped to deal with many of the challenges that we were facing these days. So there was a feeling that we need to help uh, the, the welfare state to modernize and to come up to sort of speed with some of these major changes that were, that were underway. Sort of more philosophically, the challenge that I would always give to my team, I'd always say, how do we prepare people for jobs that don't yet exist and for skills that we don't yet know that we will need? And that's a tall order. This is very, very difficult to do. So uh, one of the key uh, deliverables, therefore, of this mandate uh, was uh, the European pillar of social rights. Um, and the I think one of the overriding purposes, at least for me, was to sort of acknowledge uh, to citizens that we were concerned about their social welfare, that we did understand that major changes were underway and that a lot of people were scared and didn't know what this was leading to and that we wanted to really reaffirm our commitment to social welfare and to the social system that I think Europe is rightly proud of. It's very much part and parcel of uh, the European uh, system. So I think it was very important at the time that this sort of recommitment to the social welfare state took place at the highest level, i.e. at the level of a European head of government. Um, and uh, they convened, of course, some of you may recall, in Göteborg in Sweden in November 2017 to sign the social pillar. Um, and that was really, I mean, I was there and it was a very moving feeling that, uh, that the leaders came together and they really discussed in a very open manner some of these uh, challenges uh, that I just uh, described. But let me just uh, point to two features in the, in the pillar of social rights that I think are important. Firstly, expanding the coverage. So let me quote from principle 12 of the European pillar, and this is the quote, regardless of the type and duration of the employment relationship, workers and under comparable condition the self-employed have the right to adequate social protection. 
I repeat, regardless of the type and duration, this is a big change because hitherto it was mostly those with permanent contracts uh, that really had most of the social protection. So expanding this coverage uh, that is part of the European pillar was very, very important. Um, so, and the second uh, point I wanted to uh, to make is that this, that uh, the type of uh, was um, was a type of empowerment that is contained in the pillar of social rights uh, because it acknowledges that we are now sort of in a period of constant change. So, education, training, and lifelong learning, as well as sort of work-life balance, understanding that people may need to take some time off to care for children or to care for elderly parents, etc. This is very much part of the pillar. And uh, so, so the underpinning idea is not to prevent change, but to accompany change. And that is actually a very big change in how we do things in Europe, because for a long time there was sort of this insinuation, we can, we can protect you from change. But the reality is we couldn't. And now we're using social welfare to essentially help people and accompany them in the change that I think most people deep down know they will inevitably face. And I wanted to actually quote here, even though he didn't say it in the context of the European pillar of social rights, but when I was in Davos last year, President Macron said something that along these lines that resonated with me. So he says, we have been protecting citizens from change. But now the moment has come that we need to embrace change and prepare our generations for the future. A third element uh, in the pillar that I think is important is also the um, affirmation of the importance of social dialogue. I think there is a feeling that um, maybe there isn't a level playing field that we're seeing, uh, maybe not on this side of the Atlantic, but uh, maybe on the other side of the Atlantic, a kind of predatory capitalism that really doesn't work anymore for people, for ordinary people. And um, so really to try to level the playing field a little bit, um, I think is, uh, was, was something very important that the pillar signaled. So it was really in that spirit of, of accepting that profound changes were underway, but also understanding that we needed to reaffirm our commitment to the social welfare state. It was in that spirit, as I said, that our leaders came together and debated these issues in a very open spirit. And now there's a process underway where the member states compare and contrast what are they doing and who's doing it well and where can we update. And I remember I moderated one of the sessions um, in Göteborg on education. And I remember one of the prime ministers, it shall be, I mean, he shall be unnamed. Uh, but one of the, I asked one of the prime ministers at the end, I said, so what are you taking away from this session? And he said, you know, this guy next to me, he's my, my employment minister, and he says, we are completely not doing the things that we are discussing here. And, uh, and I thought that was really uh, great, that we are coming together in an open spirit to discuss these issues, and the leaders themselves can engage with some of these challenges that we face. So looking back, I think that it was really this pragmatic approach that was a success, and I will wrap up in a minute, but I really want to point, because there's always a lot of doom and gloom in these kind of discussions. I want to say that I believe that these last few years will be remembered as good years. Why? Unemployment in Europe is now at record low at 6.3% in June 2019. 
Employment level is at record high at 73.2%, with average age, with every age group, gender and education level seeing employment gains. So, so far, even though I share some of the concerns that Alex has, so far there's nothing that would suggest that there is major sort of technology-driven unemployment underway. Also, 60% of workers still enjoy permanent full-time jobs. Only about 2% of workers are employed in the gig economy. So it goes without saying that there's, as usual, a big variations within Europe, but it's fair to say that overall, huge progress has been made. So, I mean, if I look forward, and I'm wrapping up in a minute, for me, one of the key challenges for the welfare states will be sustainability. Can we sustain these systems over time? One of the issues we're not discussing here today is demography, uh, but uh, there will be major, major sustainability uh, challenges to, to, to these systems. On digitalization, we need to focus on adoption and diffusion of digital technologies. Um, I think, Alex, you pointed to that. If we, if we don't get serious about it and actually use the technologies, it is precisely, as you said, the countries that have embraced digitalization and automation that have the lowest level, or maybe it was you who said it, that have the lowest level of uh, unemployment. So we need to, we need to get on with this. Uh, the other point uh, that I wanted to make is, Beyond what we are discussing here, we know that humans will work with machines in the future. How will that work, the human-machine interaction? I think you alluded to that. But this will create many questions, and I think we need to really wrap our minds around it and prepare for it, because it's coming. And then, um, I mean, this is the last point I, 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 I want to make, is that we have, through data, we would have the opportunity to have much more granular insights about what works and what doesn't work in Europe. Which uh, uh, provider of lifelong learning really delivers results and who doesn't? We're not using this to the extent that we can. We could also use data to have much better tailor-made solutions for people who are in social need. I think we've been too slow on that. I think that we can, with the help of data, work in a much more granular way uh, on some of these challenges that would give us much, much better insights. Um, and the very last thing I will say as um, a middle-aged uh, woman, for anyone who looks to the future with great trepidation, I grew up in Germany in a small town in the 1970s. I thought I was sure that I was going to be a housewife before too long. The, everything was just made for middle-aged white men, sort of in industrial jobs or some kind of office job. I do not look back to that time with a tear in my eye. I thought for sure, I could not have ever imagined the opportunities that I had. And ev at least every woman in this room, please don't forget how far we have come and how far we have fought to be here today. So take nothing for granted. I don't look back at the 1970s industrial age with, uh, you know, sort of reminiscing about how great the times were, because I can assure you they were not. So we've come a long way. I've had opportunities that my mother could have never dreamt about. So let's look to the future. Let's shape the future. Let's build it the way we want to, according to the principles that we have. But let's not sort of engage in this anxiety and how terrible the future of work will be, because it's very much up to us. Public policy can shape this. And this is the spirit that I want to just close my remarks with.
And I'd, I'd like to thank you for a, Sorry, a, a really inspiring and, and, and thoughtful speech. I, I would like to toss one question back to you, if I mm -hmm. might. Um, as far as the European pillar of social rights, I am a big fan of the pillar and also the council recommendation that embodies many of those, re those uh, recommendations, including the one that you read. Um, but again, these, uh, these social protection mechanisms are first and foremost implemented in the member states. The, the European institutions do have some powers. The, uh, the council recommendation does talk about things like the European semester, and I think there's a method of social co of coordination. Um, but again, given the huge disparity in the systems, uh, f well, I guess the first question is, of course, we have a new commission coming in. How much, uh, uh, how much force will be placed behind this? But secondly, uh, assuming that there is a full political commitment, how good are the tools in trying to assure that this is actually implemented in a coherent and sensible way? I, um, if I look at, uh, first of all, I am not here to speak about uh, the, 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 the next uh, European Commission because I cannot speak for it. But if I read the political guidelines, I definitely see the European pillar uh, of social rights all over it. I mean, if I can say it, I think that if you look at the next cycle, social issues will dominate very much. And by the way, not so social per se, but we're talking about qualified majority voting, uh, the QMB in uh, the area of uh, social policy. I mean, so there is much uh, underway. And I think short of actually um, regulating it, um, it, is, it is absolutely, I mean, the, you, you have proportionality. I mean, a lot of this should be taking place at the member state level because they know best how to do it. But what has now finally started is that member states are starting to talk to each other about these issues. And I think this is very fruitful and uh, that process is now well underway. And it's important to understand that the 20 principles are principles. I mean, so we need to adapt as we go along the way. It's not sort of enshrined now that, you know, we only ever look at issues through a, through a specific lens. I mean, these issues will be evolving as we go along. But that process has now started, and uh, if, if I have one prediction to make is that this will accelerate uh, in, the, in, in the next term, uh, where I see a lot of social priorities, anything from a European unemployment insurance to a, uh, a, a minimum wage in all of the member states to, uh, you know, to a child guarantee. So, I mean, many of these issues are going to be at the forefront. So, I, 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 I see no discontinuity, let's put it this way, between this term and the next in this field. Th that's really encouraging. Mm -hmm. So, thank you very, very much for that. And with that, I'll be moving on in just a second to Professor Tyson. Uh, I would like to just remind everybody to be thinking about questions that you're going to want to pose. Uh, unlike the morning sessions, uh, this one will not be using Slido. I'll be taking questions from the room. So get, get, your, get your cards and letters ready. Old-fashioned way. Old way, yes. Yeah, so, so, so the digital guy is using traditional Q&A. Sorry. <laughs> exactly. Now, with that, I'll be handing off to Professor Tyson. Uh, Professor Tyson is a former U.S. government uh, official, senior government official, uh, a, uh, a professor in California. Uh, and is also studying exactly these issues uh, in Berlin, uh, even now. Uh, so I'd be very much interested in your perspective and also in any thoughts you could give about how these issues manifest somewhere outside of Europe. It's a great pleasure to be with you today. It's a great pleasure to share the panel with such interesting experts. Um, 
my focus in this area is on uh, the labor market. I'm not looking at the bigger media and social issues. Although I will say, by the way, that I did do FaceTime with my three-year-old the other day from Helsinki, and she now knows <coughs> the word Helsinki. She said, my grandmother is in Helsinki. So there you go, smaller world. Um, in any event, uh, I focus on the labor issues. Uh, and I have done my work significantly with, uh, I would recommend another set of readings, not nearly as exciting as your readings, but the McKinsey Global Institute, which is the think tank associated with McKinsey. All of its work is online free. Uh, the work is not done with clients. It's basically done uh, as a in a think tank situation. They have done a number of studies measuring uh, the extent of change in labor markets, not just in the U.S., but around the world, likely to come from technological change. And, and I view their estimates and the framework in which they put the arguments uh, very compelling. So I'm going to talk a bit about some of their findings, but I recommend their work to you. Um, so first of all, we've heard about employment, unemployment, technological unemployment. There's nothing in economic history, and there's nothing in economic theory. There's therefore nothing in economic evidence to suggest that as technology changes, we end up with long-run technological unemployment. We end up with perhaps a lot of tra transitional. We can end up with transitional unemployment, some structural unemployment, frictional unemployment. The more there is significant transitions going on, the more it may take time for there to be a matching between the skills and the jobs, between the skills and the location of jobs. So I just want to start with, I don't think economists take the issue of technological unemployment as a serious concern. That does not mean, however, that if there's going to be a lot of change, and I think there is, and I'll talk about some of those numbers, that there's not, there is a lot of dislocation or displacement. There's a lot of pain. A lot of people suffer along the way. So if you go to the great, the third industrial revolution or the second industrial revolution, or you know, everybody says, oh, but look at, look at agriculture. Look at, we, we moved out of agriculture without a problem. Yeah, we think that because we didn't move out of agriculture, our ancestors did, and the people who moved out of agriculture had a pretty serious problem. So I, I just want to say that the transition issues are what we should focus on. Um, as far as uh, the level of employment, unemployment in, in, the, in Europe right now, it's true around the world. I think we're going to have to look to macro policy uh, issues. Uh, that, that, that this is about macroeconomic policy. And of course, the threats to it now about employment are actually macro threats. They're trade threats. They're, they're fiscal policy threats. Their monetary policy can no longer have an effect even at a zero or, or negative real rate. So just to get that out of the way as an economist. <laughs> um, the technological change, uh, we also know from history and again from theory and again from empirical evidence, uh, is a major driver of productivity change. So it drives improvements in livelihoods. It, over the long run, we cannot question the value, economically speaking, uh, of uh, technological change. Um, a recent study by David Otor, another well-known economist in this space, uh, at Solomon's, found they looked for 35 years 
over all of the advanced industrial countries, and their conclusion was that productivity growth has made a small employment contribution. So there's no trade-off over a 35-year period between technological change, productivity gains, and employment levels, okay? And, and that's a very carefully done study, and uh, again, it's not as exciting as some of the books you recommended, but it's a pretty good study, uh, and <laughs> I would recommend it. Um, now, the challenges we face are, first of all, uh, speed and scale of the, of the technological automation in the workplace we are now going through. It's happening fast, and it's happening at scale. So my McKinsey colleagues estimate, relative to previous industrial or technological revolutions, 10 times as fast, 10 times, and 300 times as broad, okay? That's 3,000 times the impact, okay? So I had to, uh, part of my getting involved in this was a little bit coming from a World Economic Forum lunch a few years ago, where the technologists were talking about how fast this is all moving and saying, God, there are all these productivity benefits out there. It's gonna be just fantastic. And by the way, someone looked at me, I'm sitting in the back of the room taking notes and said, okay, let's ask a former policymaker, can you change policy fast enough to keep up with this? And I said, I don't think so, I don't think so. Maybe in the attempt to get a new social contract really fast, instead we get social disruptions, political disorder. We don't get a nice, smooth, quick social contract. So uh, it's happening fast, it's happening broadly. Uh, and it's happening at the same time unevenly. So different implications for different places. Uh, the McKinsey uh, group just did uh, an update of some of their studies looking at the amount of displacement projected between now and 2030 and the amount of job growth projected between now and 2030. This continues on their, their economy-wide studies. They did it for the US. Bad news here, okay, the, the, the high, tech centers and the growth urban centers are where the job growth is going to occur. It is not going to occur in the, in the countryside. It's not gonna go back to the distressed cities. This is their projection. But I just wanna say that the regional pattern of this, lo this location could actually be uh, very uneven. And I know I just saw a map from uh, the German Ministry of Labor pointing out exactly the same thing for Germany. So they're very worried about, okay, where are the jobs disappearing because of technology? Where are they appearing? Not the same place, <laughs> not the same place. So we have uneven dislocation by skills, by occupations, by place, by gender, by gender. Um, one of the things about the technological revolution we're going through is I think there's widespread agreement that is what we call uh, skill biased. It's complementing certain kinds of skills and it's eliminating, uh, making redundant other kinds of skills. So the first piece of bad news here is that so far the evidence from the past, and this is all speeding up now, but from the past, would say the most at risk jobs are middle skill, cognitive, manual, and cognitive, uh, excuse me, routine manual and routine cognitive. Men disproportionately hold routine manual. And they went through this first, particularly in the United States. And if you look at the decimation 
of some of the parts of the U.S. economy and what happened to the workforce there, men who had less than a secondary education, didn't even finish high school. They used to have manual jobs that were routine or they could be trained up to them that were pretty good jobs. And those jobs have significantly disappeared. The place where robots have made the greatest incursion in the US and in Europe, and in Germany in particular I've been looking at, is manufacturing and particularly auto manufacturing, particularly auto manufacturing. So the other set of jobs where you think, okay, where are women sitting? Routine, cognitive, those are clerical, those are data collection, those are administrative support systems which can be done. You know, if you can carry your personal assistant around on a plane, on a, on a, on a plane in a, a phone, end of your personal assistant, right? So um, there are gender implications to dislocation, skill implications. Uh, there are place implications. So, um, there is a long-run concern, not the technological unemployment concern, that I think is not paid enough attention to in the discussion. And that is, I, would, I call it livelihoods. Suppose what happens here is the technology displaces a lot of the middle, as it has been doing, it drives some people to the top, that towards the top. That's the skill bias to the top. You need the skills to work with the technology. But it drives a lot of people downward. Particularly, this is a new study by David Otor showing in the US very clearly. If you look at the direction of change, where, do you slip into a worse job or you get to go to a better job? Significantly depends upon whether you have a secondary education or not significantly depends upon that. So I don't know if we're over-educating or under-educating, but I will say that basically your likelihood, your job is maybe disrupted. You're sitting in the middle. Will you get disruption which helps you to get up or disruption which helps you go down? And education seems to be a big, big determinant of that. So I worry about the wage effects or the livelihood effects. Okay, so suppose we have jobs for people, but they're just not that good in terms of protection, in terms of wages. Do we need a higher minimum wage? You know, Germany a few years ago went to a minimum wage for the first time. As they saw their service sector increasing, as they saw that the organized firms doing more and more outsourcing, they actually had the support the wage in that other part of the economy. So I just think about, as we look at transitions, think about uh, the wage effects. Now, let me just give you some, I, I think that if I read a few of the McKinsey numbers, which are for the US, but they're very representative of, of Germany, I know because I've done the comparison, it'll give you some idea of the scale. So the McKinsey studies all say the following, with currently, available technologies, currently available. I'm not imagining any new development in AI or anything else. Uh, between 2016 and 2030, what can we expect? What can we expect? So first of all, half of the occupations, half of the occupations have the potential to have some of the tasks be automated. So Fry's mistake was he got it right that half of the occupations will be affected. He got it wrong that those occupations are, the effect is on the tasks within the occupations. It's not on the elimination 
uh, or the automation away of the occupations. But about half of occupations have some potential to be automated. Less than 5%, not a big number, consist of, of tasks that are 100% automatable. So right now, it's not a big problem right now. Now, but, but, depends on how you define big. About 60%, 60% of occupations have at least 30% of tasks that right now can be automated. So what if I'm in, a, in an occupation that has that, auto I don't know what my job is gonna look like. Am I gonna have 30% uh, of my job eliminated? Uh, are, there, are there just gonna be fewer of those jobs because the other, the part that's not automated will show up with some workers and the part that is automated will show up with, nobody kind of knows what that means. That's, that actually is a large number, 30% of 60% uh, uh, of occupations have 30% of their tasks that could be automated right now, right now. Um, the most susceptible are routine physical and routine, uh, routine cognitive. I've already mentioned that. Uh, how about sectors? Where do most people work? Forget occupations for a minute. Where do they work? Accommodation and food. Big, big, low skill, low income, low wage, big employer sector, accommodation and skills. Manufacturing, well, I already mentioned that, that's very serious. Transport and warehousing, retail and wholesale trade. When you put these things together, these are really big parts of employment uh, in the United States and in other advanced industrial countries. What about we go to task for a minute. Routine cognitive, collecting data, processing data. Those are really dangerous tasks to be good at right now. Uh, routine, manual, is predictable, physical, that is basically manufacturing jobs. In the US right now, about more than half of all of the working hours occur in these most susceptible kinds of activities. More than half, okay, so I think that's suggests that a lot of people are susceptible to a change in their tasks. Um, I already mentioned, but I want to emphasize again, that the evidence so far, clearly from the advanced industrial countries, not just from the US, is that the occupations and tasks in the middle of the current wage distribution are the most vulnerable, the most vulnerable, the middle. So what happens to the middle? the middle class, and then that becomes very much, whether, whether you're doing it by social policy principle or economic policy, what do you do uh, to try to move people up in terms of livelihoods, not down? Um, I've already mentioned differences by gender and education, so let me just talk a little bit about policy, because I know that this is uh, something, and by the way, I, I'm so lucky in my life now, I don't have to speak for anybody except myself, so I used to have to speak for the government, but I'm free of that. Um, so, um, first of all, I wanna start with the notion that there are, there, even though we talk about technology as if its application is deterministic, we, there's nothing we can do about it except figure out how to respond to it, I think we can shape it um, by policy, and I think we can shape it by business response. I think we can shape it by the voice of labor, uh, working with business and thinking about, well, how are we going to redesign 
the organization? How are we going to redesign the work process? How are we going to skill the workers? You know, I'm on the board of a very large U.S. company. That company looked forward 10 years and said, you know, technology is going to take out a significant part of our labor force over time. Let's do that through, we'll do that through attrition. We're not going to lay people off. And at the same time, we'll develop all of these training uh, capsules and nano courses and degree programs so that if you're a worker, young worker in the organization, you can get the skills you need that will help you stay five years out. Or if you're a new enter the workforce, you'll get the skills that you need to apply for those jobs. So it's very forward looking. It's basically saying, we can, we see where the technology's going, but we can organize around it. And I think that's really very important. Um, so let me just say, there's a whole area of policy which I would call education and skills policy. We can talk about that. I, I'm just gonna categorize it because I've taken up a lot of time already. Active labor market policies. This is really interesting. I was talking to someone from the German Ministry of Labor. He was giving a public address in uh, Bank of Helsinki, so I can re repeat this. He said, you know, one of the things we're trying to do in our active labor market policy in Germany is figure out ways to actually deal with either the new entrant to the workforce or someone who is losing a job to do very individual competence assessment and training to, and then trying to match them to a job. So you'd actually use the technology in a very individual way to say, all right, let's look at your skills, let's look at what you could develop, let's look at who you are and where you are, and let's use the active labor market policy driven by digital information. I think that's a great example of using the technology to try to shape the future. Um, there's a lot of social protection issues. Look, I come from a country where we are, we're debating whether we should get rid of the closest we ever got to health care for all. So I, I uh, clearly the transition issues for a family in terms of access to health, access to childcare, access to the social protections, which are obviously they're social protections. They don't, they shouldn't come from your employment status. They should come from society's attachment of those protections to you. Um, you heard a lot about that thinking in Europe. Uh, the ILO did a very important study just in the last six months, sort of laying out what they thought the social protection should be, that nations should provide for all kinds of workers, whether they're gig economy workers or they're self-employed workers or they're fully employed workers. Um, so I think we can talk a lot about that. Uh, one other thing I just want to mention, I know, but I got to mention climate. I do because it's been mentioned here many times and I think it's very important because we're thinking right now of what's the workforce of the future going to look like? What's 2030 going to look like? We got one other major thing going on in the world here. Right now, 2030 is going to look a lot worse if we don't do something on climate. So I would just bring climate together and uh, put it here right in the middle of the future of work. Belongs. So, <laughs> so thank you very much for that. Uh, thank you. And uh, apologies for urgently tapping the watch. No but, problem. Uh, no, no, no. No problem. No problem. Good. Uh, thank you very much for really interesting remarks. Now, I'd like to hand over next to uh, Jamie Haywood. Uh, Jamie is the uh, regional general manager uh, for uh, UK, Northern, and Eastern Europe for Uber. Uh, Uber has, of course, been something of a poster child for some of the issues here. And uh, actually, one thing I'd particularly welcome, 
I know you folks have sponsored a lot of research about how your workers operate. Uh, in the past, workers might change jobs every few years. My understanding is that your drivers might change jobs every few hours, that they, some of them spend part of the day working for you and part of the day perhaps they, as they, part They may change every few minutes. <laughs> wow. Okay, That's so. That's the nature of work. Yeah, so th that has implications for how, for example, benefits total yeah, up across exactly. different uh, forms of work. It certainly comes very much back to the issues that Anne was raising. So again, I, I'd appreciate understanding from someone who's a little closer to how the issues actually play out in real life, yeah, uh, how this plays out. Thank you, Scott. I, I do feel when I when I read the the sort of the ground we were hoping to cover, which is AI robotics and the future of work, I thought it was a a very big canvas. I'm very conscious it's been painted on very ably by three people previously. So I will try and add some 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 different perspectives to try and maybe provide a little bit of color uh, in the in the as yet uncovered bit. Um, it is, and and so and so I think the two two things that that maybe I can cover that haven't been addressed to date is maybe a little bit of the perspective from a company and individual basis, um, and secondly the 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 nature of um, the gig economy and the role of the platform economy in some of this um, technological change. Um, so I think that the first thing to say is obviously everyone, we, we would all be unanimous in saying technology is, is going to drive huge change in the, the nature of work. I think the nature of the change uh, for uh, independent workers enabled through the gig economy is slightly different to, for example, the nature of change for those impacted by robotics, AI, neural networks. And specifically, it's because it's it, it allows different uh, allocations of the way tasks are brought together. Uh, so it goes back to, you know, the, the famous uh, Kenneth Arrow paper, which talked about why do firms exist, and it's it's basically to reduce transaction costs. Now, as technology reduces transaction costs, that allows work to be rearranged in different ways, um, and that allows that in turn impacts the nature of the relationship between companies and the individuals doing the work. And so one aspect of the change which has been enabled by technology, but is not, is not preordained by technology, because I think the key thing is what societies want technology to do, is the creation of the gig economy and, and independent work within the gig economy. Uh, I think it's f worth starting also by saying that uh, probably in terms of column inches, it is overrepresented as a share of the employment discussion relative to actually the proportion of work being done by gig economy workers. So globally, according to the World Bank, about 0.5% of global workers are within the gig economy. I think the numbers previously within the EU was 2%. So we're talking about a very small proportion of, of current work. Um, and I think it, it's also therefore important to say that from, from Uber's perspective, you know, there's, we're not evangelical about this. We're not saying this is the right work for everyone. We're saying we believe that at a time of change, at a time of technological change, um, there are benefits for both countries in building flexibility into their employment systems, and there's also benefits for individuals uh, in building flexibility into the way they live their lives and the way they work. So Scott was mentioning um, some work that we did with uh, some academic institutions where uh, at Uber we shared all of our driver data for London. So that's the earnings data, the hours data, uh, and also 
sufficient detail that the, the academics could contact and talk to some of the, the workers with two academics from Oxford University. And I just want to say three things that, that were in their conclusion. The report is public, um, so everyone is welcome, welcome to, to look after it. The, the first thing they said was that 90% uh, of drivers chose to work on Uber and therefore by, de by extension, I think, other gig economy platforms because of the flexibility it gave them, because of the flexibility it gave them to balance the ability to earn money um, with the ability to uh, balance other, other life requirements. The second thing they said was 85% of the workers um, had previously been in full-time work and that in order to return to full-time work, they would expect a 35% wage premium per hour or, or to earn 35% more per hour. So the value of flexibility has a, a monetary sort of calculus that, that, the, that, is, that is real and important and therefore for some proportion of the workforce, this is an important uh, e equation. However, as, as everyone has said, whilst I think there are benefits created by this technological change, um, there are also challenges uh, to, uh, that the change creates for independent work. I think the first one uh, is that not all flexible work is created equal. Um, so specifically, some independent work uh, requires is one-way flexibility. That means it's flexible for the employer. It's not as flexible for the worker. Um, so specifically, they may be required to commit to certain components of exclusivity. There may be shift obligations on that work. That's not true flexible, flexible working. True flexible working, which is what we are trying to espouse and endorse in Uber, is two-way flexibility. That it's entirely flexible for the worker as to whether they want to commit in and take a trip or take a job or not take a job. And they can take that choice on a minute-by-minute, trip-by-trip basis. Uh, there's no obligation on either the employer or, or the worker. Uh, second, I think, difficulty that the, the gig economy creates is that... Um, Often independent workers have um, unequal access to social protections. So the, the, the employment model that m operates in many of the member states within the EU is really built out of a model of the relationship between companies and workers that dates back to the middle or beginning of the last century. Um, and I think that means that it's geared around a full-time employment model and it doesn't extend very easily into part-time flexible working. And I think that creates, at times of change, that creates great risks for individuals who may find themselves um, potentially sick or um, in, in life, life situations where, where they can't commit to work. And I think that, that, you know, that's something that is very serious. And as Uber, we, we lean in, and our belief is we, we have an obligation both as a company but also as uh, a citizen within the member states to actually provide the, an appropriate level of protections for those those employees, and obviously, from a member state perspective, that should look into the, the the realm of portable protections, much of which has been covered previously. I think the third problem that we see with um, independent work is that um, independent work can lack for opportunities for personal development, um, and so you know we heard about the premium and the importance of skills development, um, and it's therefore very important that workers who are get getting uh, working independently are not disadvantaged in their ability to develop, them scale, d develop themselves and keep up developing the skills for the future. Um, so on the basis of that and on the basis of a lot of the work we've done talking to our drivers, 
uh, at Uber, we've come up with a, sort of the four pillars of what we think is good work within the um, sort of independent gig economy work sec sector. Uh, the first one is greater flexibility and, and proper two-way flexibility. So that means no, no penalties if, if someone doesn't come to work or chooses to reject a trip. Uh, no obligations, no obligations for exclusivity. That individual should be able to take the choice as to where they want to work, minute by minute, trip by trip by trip, or whatever the unit of, of, of work is. So I think, I think that's an important component. The second component is better protections throughout work. Um, so there are situations where people get sick. There are situations where people have people want to want to leave the, the or have to leave the workplace for a period. They shouldn't be disadvantaged on that. What we're doing there is we we've worked with AXA Insurance that we've provided insurance cover uh, for 150,000 of our drivers to make sure that they have cover if they're sick or they're in an accident. And on the back of that, we've already enabled and covered 45,000 days worth of unpaid uh, of non-worked non-work pay uh, and actually help sort of help people get through 3,000 uh, uber births or births to uber drivers is probably a more appropriate way to say it um, and I think the third part of what we think is good work from an uber perspective is about making sure that there are opportunities for growth for people for driver partners and what we've done in the US is we're working with uh, online courses and we hope to do, be doing similar things in, in Europe to make sure our drivers have access to more modular um, sort of remote opportunities to build their skills and continue to develop within the workplace. And then I think the fourth thing that we think is important is about this is work, this is work that allows greater access to work. So for example, we work with in Manchester in the UK where I'm from, we work with um, deaf um, communities of deaf people where actually, you know, the ability to drive an Uber is, is, a, is a type of work that actually they value and it's, an, it's a way into the workforce that they don't otherwise have. In, in London, 85% of our, our drivers are actually from an ethnic minorities for whom some of the full-time employment uh, work is just harder to, harder to get access to. Um, so look, so I think this is a very, very important discussion. You know, at Uber, we realize we are a poster child for both good and bad for these conversations. Personally, I think with technological change coming in, you know, I, I do think the premium that is important from a country perspective, but also of an individual perspective on flexibility and the ability to adapt into this change is very, very important. And I think we therefore would like to be part of that debate and feel that we have something to add to the debate about how societies in the EU and member states in the EU make sure that this works for all of their citizens. Thank you. Much. So we have seven minutes left to the scheduled closing. Um, why don't we plan to take two questions? You can stay a little bit. I think I know that you've got a time constraint, but you can. Yeah, yeah. No, I'm I'm good. Okay. Why don't we take two questions? So uh, let, let's make it one and two. Uh, we'll we'll bring a mic over. Yes, good afternoon. Uh, I am from Portugal. I'd like to make a question to Anne Metler. What do you think about using uh, collective intelligence to, what do you think about using uh, collective intelligence, collective intelligence, sorry, collective as a tool to reinforce the installation of artificial intelligence? So how can you use the collective intelligence to reinforce the relations between machines, humans, and society? 
Um, I would like to suggest the new research that has been done at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. And this research suggests that the fourth industrial revolution is different compared to previous revolution because in the previous revolutions, you, what you basically saw is that uh, the amount of jobs that were distracted uh, by the technology, the, the, at the same pace, new jobs were created. So you didn't see any, I mean, there was, uh, there was adjustment, but in basically in the aggregate, there was no, no difference between the two. Now, this uh, study suggests that actually this is not true for artificial intelligence and robots. Uh, so that the pace by which uh, jobs are destroyed does not, is not counterbalanced by the pace in which new jobs are created. And therefore, there is a very important policy uh, conclusion that comes from this study that basically suggests that the governments should intervene into the direction that artificial intelligence is, is taking place. So they should get a focus on the creation of what they call good jobs. And it's basically because there is an euphoria in the, in the Silicon Valley that you, you, you actually have these technologies that substitute workers. So you have the factories without workers. But actually what you want is that the artificial intelligence takes a, it goes in a direction in which it creates jobs. And the, the, the study suggests that it's basically that's the reason why we didn't see that productivity was increasing as much with the new technology because actually this is what happens. We don't see, uh, 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 the technology is advancing, but we don't see the productivity gains. So that suggests that government should get involved and try to influence the direction in which artificial intelligence goes forward. So it should create economic incentives in firms to create jobs, basically, rather than substitute for them. Okay, I, I think we got the point. Um, good. Uh, I would. Uh, I think that's probably closest to what you were speaking about. Would you like to respond to that one? Was it? Was it? Was the question clear? Yeah, yeah. The question was clear. Uh, did everyone hear the question? It, it basically has to do with the fact that, particularly for AI, <coughs> uh, AI-based uh, sort of technological uh, change in the workplace, that the pace of job destruction may far out, uh, be, be far faster than the pace of job creation. And that therefore we need to, as policymakers, uh, think about do we want to use incentives to adjust the trajectory of artificial intelligence, uh, technological change? Do we, do we want, so we have, we have systems which right now we actually subsidize R&D in artificial intelligence. We actually uh, put a lot of tax on human labor. We actually have a very low cost of capital in general. So right now the incentives sitting in Silicon Valley, and, I, and I've heard lots of Silicon Valley people say, are to basically create artificial intelligence to substitute for humans. Th their concern is not the societal effects or the labor market effects or the political effects. It's literally can, can this machine very quickly, can this intelligence very quickly do the job of a human much better and more efficiently than humans.
Uh, and I think it's a fair point to say that if we look at our whole systems now, there is a lot of support incentives in the system to encourage exactly that kind of technological uh, trajectory. Maybe we can adjust it a little bit. So I have a lot of sympathy for that thinking, is what I would say. Okay, did anybody else have something to add on those two questions? Collective the mic, uh, uh, Portugal, thank you for your very good question. I think it's actually a very, uh, very good one, namely to think a little bit about not just AI that is sort of dropped uh, on us, but to think how can we use our collective intelligence? Because what are we talking about? Artificial intelligence. We're not just talking about using AI for a new consumer gadget, right? We're talking about what would people actually want from this AI? And I would argue that if you use collective intelligence, people would want it to solve some of the big, difficult challenges, be it climate change,